Good morning, everybody. Our Bible reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Can I ask you, you've been sitting and listening for a long time, can I ask you to stand and I'll lead us in prayer, then we'll come to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, as always, we come to you empty-handed. Um, we come to you desperately needing you to, to hear you speak to us, Lord. But we, in and of ourselves, we do not have ears to hear. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you will give us ears to hear this morning. That you will cut our hearts afresh. That you will give us eyes to see the Father. The eyes of faith to see the Father through the Son in the power of his spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We finally reached the climax of the book of Hebrews. It's taken us two years and a bit. We finally reached the climax. This passage that Isabel read for us this morning is both a summary and the summit of the entire sermon, remembering, of course, that the book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's both a summary and the summit of that sermon. What is this summit? It's a vision of two mountains. How fitting for a summit. A vision of two mountains. What we have, what we're going to experience together this morning is a vision of the mountain of fear, the mountain of joy, and a call to respond. So the mountain of fear, the mountain of joy, and a call to respond. Come with me to the mountain of fear. Someone described the scene at Mount Sinai like this. The ground is unsteady under your feet due to perpetual seismic tremors. The sky is black in deep darkness except for the radiating forks of lightning in the gloom and the fire blazing from the top of the mountain to the very heavens. Celestial trumpets blare louder and louder in primal moans. Moses speaks, 
And God answers him with a voice like thunder. Terror is the only word I can think of to describe what it must have felt like to be there. But even terror seems a bit of an understatement. The people were so scared that they begged God to stop speaking. Moses himself, Moses who had faced down Pharaoh ten times and led an entire nation without flinching, an entire nation into the Red Sea. Moses was trembling. I think the beast in verse 20 best captures the kind of danger they were in and the kind of fear they must have experienced. So Hebrews 12 verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. If grazing livestock happened to wander onto the mountain as grazing livestock is prone to do, that animal, those animals would need to be stoned. Sinai was so charged with the holiness of the Lord that if even an animal touched it, an animal without any moral agency, that beast would have to die. Animals are not even capable of guilt, and yet they would have to die. They would die merely on the basis that they lived in a cursed world and then brought that contamination into contact with the God of holiness. In the same way, if you remember, in the same way that Moses had to remove his sandals at the burning bush because those sandals had touched the ground that was under the curse of God. The animal would have to die. It would have to die by stoning because if you were to touch it in order to kill it, you would have to die. No wonder the people at Sinai could not bear to hear the voice of God. A million people in the presence of raw, unbridled power and white-hot purity, constantly just one false move away from death. This is Mount Sinai, the mountain of fear. It represents the covenant with Moses, what we sometimes call the Old Testament. Our author is preaching to Jewish Christians who were facing persecution from their Jewish culture. And so they were constantly tempted to go back to that Jewish culture. Things would be so much easier for them relationally, socially, financially, if they just went back. If you just went back, well, then you could get the job. You could marry the girl. You wouldn't have to worry about the business boycott or the looters or be th- being thrown into prison just for your faith. You'd be able to have dinner with your friends again if you just went back. And so, of course, they faced a constant temptation to go back. The author reminds them that going back means going back to the mountain of fear. I think that many of us are tempted to go back to Mount Sinai. And by that I don't mean some sort of pilgrimage. I don't mean getting circumcised and becoming Jewish. What I mean is we are tempted by a way of relating to God that is based on, based on obedience. 
The basis of my relationship is my obedience, my performance as a Christian, the fact that I am more good than bad, my service to the church family, my giving, my kindness to people who really need kindness, the things I do that no one else will do, that no one else even notices or sees, but it doesn't matter because God sees, the sacrifices I make for others. It's how I keep the flames of God's love burning for me. That's what makes my relationship with God possible in a way that it just isn't possible for others because they make it impossible by the way they live. When I think about the fact that God chose me, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I'm not like that alcoholic at work or that Muslim who lives next door or that hippie at the flea market. Thank you, God. I am not like them. We're constantly tempted to think this way, aren't we? The basis of my relationship with God is my moral character and performance. We're constantly tempted to pitch our tent on Mount Sinai as if Mount Sinai were a national park. And we're not even afraid. We can't even see the danger. I mean, how can there be danger for someone like me? For that guy, maybe. I mean, he doesn't even go to church. But for me, I've been putting in the hard yards. My friends, to think this way is to be blind to the vision of Sinai. Utterly blind. Remember at Sinai, the people had consecrated themselves. They had washed their garments. They abstained from sex. They religiously, meticulously observed the boundary markers that had been laid down. All that effort, all that moral purity, but when the Lord spoke, just spoke, they utterly melted in fear. To choose to go to Sinai and think you can pitch your tent there is to have a dangerously stunted view of God's holiness and a dangerously stunted view of your sinfulness. To choose to go to Sinai is madness. You are choosing death. So why would anyone want to? Why do we find it so tempting? Now that's a question, isn't it? I think we are all tempted to go to Sinai because while on, while on one level... Grace is entirely free. On another level, it is enormously costly. Grace costs you your self-righteousness. Grace means that all your goodness is worth nothing. It counts for nothing. And we don't like that. That's a crisis. That's an existential crisis. Because from the time we are born, we are taught to justify our own existence, to prove ourselves, to earn our way, to influence, to outperform, to be better than the next guy. And either, one of two things happens. Either we think that worthiness comes quite naturally, and if, you know, really, if, if God has to pick, well, isn't it obvious, I'm in. Or, 
we live with this deep, nagging question about whether we are worthy. And we work our guts out to prove that we are. Grace says, all of that is worth nothing. And it counts for nothing. It's worth less than nothing because it's all about you and your pride. And your woefully stunted view of God's holiness. Of what it takes to be in his presence. The whole project is bankrupt. We want to put it in the asset column, but it's a, it's a raging liability. It's the very reason we are condemned. If you are going to come to God on the basis of your righteousness, be afraid. Be very afraid. You see, we don't, we don't just need to repent of our sin. We need to repent of our righteousness. The preacher sums all of this up in just his first very few simple words of verse 18. What does he say? He says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You have not come to Mount Sinai. This, O Christian, O disciple of Jesus, this is not your mountain. Well, if it's not this one, which one is it? The mountain of joy. You have not come to Mount Sinai, but, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What is this mountain, this Mount Zion? What's it all about? Well, when you look at that language, city, gathering, assembly, the sense you get is one of togetherness, one of communion, communion with God and communion with God's people. And it's a joyful communion. It's a festival. It's a party. But it's not the kind that you're going to have at Kofi on a Saturday night with young Stunner on the decks. Not that kind of party. It's more like the kind we had in 1994. That kind of massive outpouring of victorious, righteous joy. But this one has the living God at the center. Moses once said, no one, no one can hear the voice of the living God and live. But now, the voice of the living God is the very thing giving life to all those in the city. 10,000 upon 10,000 angels exploding in a festival of light. A great teeming multitude of men and women, brothers and sisters of the firstborn gathered around him. Their names written forever in heaven. Their spirits brought to a state of perfect creaturely righteousness. The entire company of heaven and earth gathered around God the judge to celebrate his final judgment. That final outpouring of his justice, the righting of every last wrong, 
and the establishment of a righteous order that will reign forever, uncontested, into eternity. And you will be there. Imagine. You will be there. In amongst that great cloud of witnesses, all those heroes of the faith, the ones who'd been cheering you on until you arrived, you will be there. It's a vision of the end. But it's also a reality that breaks into the here and now. Because, what does it say? You have come, you have come to Mount Zion. Perfect tense. That's a past reality with ongoing implications. You have come to Mount Zion. That means that the church militant, us here on earth, have a deep fellowship with the church triumphant in heaven right now. The question is how? A deeper question is how do either of us have fellowship with the living God? How can either of us survive the voice of the living God? I mean, think back to Mount Sinai. Has God changed? Is the God on Mount Zion a different God to the one on Mount Sinai? Is he just a better host? He's more hospitable. Or is this the same God who has somehow changed over time? You know, he's mellowed out in his old age. And if he changed once, is he going to change again? You know, Zion today, but he get, if he gets out of bed on the wrong side tomorrow, back to Sinai. How, how are we supposed to understand these two mountains? What makes the difference? The first thing we have to say is that it has nothing to do with you or your performance, right? The bad ones go to Sinai and the good ones go to Zion. Nothing like that. Look at the description of those who are invited to the party. Their names are enrolled in heaven. Their spirits have been made perfect. Those verbs are passive. It means it's got nothing to do with them. In other words, these people did not write their own names on the guest list. The criterion for entry is perfection. But they didn't make themselves perfect. That is spiritually and philosophically impossible. If this God is the same God, and imperfection means death on Sinai, and these people didn't make themselves perfect, but here they are, frolicking about on the mountain of joy. How did they get there? What made the difference? Verse 24. You have come to Jesus. You have come to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the one who turns the mountain of fear into a mountain of joy. And he does it by mediating a new covenant. 
a new covenant. Now, what makes this covenant new? What makes it better? The text is explicit. It's clear. It's there. It's straightforward. It's simple. Better blood that speaks a better word. What does that mean? Better blood that speaks a better word that gives us a new covenant in Jesus. What does that mean? Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. And his blood cries out from the ground for justice. It speaks of all the injustice in this fallen world. And it cries out to God for justice. It's a good word. It's a good word. We want justice. We need justice. Our souls ache for justice. It's a good word. Abel's blood cries out in that good word for justice. And it cries out for all of us. That cry is answered by the blood of Jesus. Human sin must be paid for by human blood if there's going to be any real justice. It's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. It's human blood for human sin. It's the only way there can be justice. The blood of Jesus speaks that word of justice. Justice has been served. Abel and his offspring are avenged. Justice is satisfied. But there's a problem, isn't there? And we know what the problem is. The problem is that we don't just identify with Abel. We also identify with Cain. How many people have you murdered in your mind, in your heart, this past week? Because the Lord Jesus is crystal clear on this. Anger and hatred are murder, just in seed form. If we weren't so afraid of the consequences, who knows what we would be capable of? All of us have a share in Cain. Cain has a share in all of us. Here's the absolutely extraordinary thing. If you go back to that story in Genesis, the extraordinary thing, God doesn't kill Cain. In fact, he protects him. Now, how can that possibly be? How can he claim to be a God of justice and let Cain escape the punishment that fits his crime. It's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. It's a human life for a human life. That's justice. And yet Cain can go free because the blood of Jesus has more to say. The blood of Jesus speaks a word of justice. The blood of Jesus also speaks a word of mercy. The blood of Jesus answers the cry of Abel, but it also answers the cry of Cain. God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. The blood of Jesus means that the mountain of fear becomes a mountain of joy. 
You don't have to flee for your life. You are invited in. You are invited in to celebrate. The blood of Jesus means that when God speaks, you don't have to beg him to stop. It's the opposite. We beg him to never stop speaking because his word is life to us. Where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of life. The blood of Jesus reminds us we cannot go up the mountain to get holiness. Holiness has to come down the mountain to get us. If God speaks such a kind, gracious, life-giving word to us, how are we going to respond? How do we respond to the blood of Jesus? The better word in the better blood. When God calls to us in the blood of his son, what are we going to call back? Four responses straight from our text. Obedience, thanksgiving, worship, and fear. Those four, obedience, thanksgiving, worship, and fear. Firstly, obedience, chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Jesus is speaking to you through his blood. He's calling to you. Don't refuse him. Submit to his word of grace. He is offering you free and safe passage onto the mountain of joy. Where you will rejoice in the God who saves those who don't deserve it. Why would you refuse him? Don't refuse him. Obey him. It is going to cost you your self-righteousness project. It's going to cost you that much, but who cares? Honestly, who cares? No one else believes in your project anyway. You are the only one who thinks you're good enough. You are the only one who thinks you can fool the rest of us into believing that you are a good Christian. Forget that. Forget your idiotic pride, and I will forget mine. Should we agree to do that? I mean, it's... It's such a burden anyway. It is so, the pretense, keeping up the pretense is so exhausting. Let's forget all of that. Jesus is offering us life and life to the full. He is inviting us into the banquet. Are we honestly going to refuse him so that we can stay here and eat the leftovers of last night's fast food that is our self-righteousness project? Is that the choice we're going to make? Don't do that. Don't refuse him. Obey his call. Come to him with nothing but the faith of a child. Accept the gift. There is no other way. There is no better life. Accept the gift. Obey the call. Secondly, thanksgiving, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Mount Sinai shook. It trembled with the holy righteousness of God. And God is going to shake the whole universe in a final act of holy righteousness, a final judgment, a final shaking. The blood of Jesus says to you that you will survive that judgment. 
of all the righteous things in the universe, of all the people who have ever lived, you will survive. That is the better word of the better blood. If you are not grateful, if thanksgiving doesn't pour out of your soul like a mighty river that can never run dry, if your whole demeanor isn't one of profound gratitude, then you have not understood yourself and you have not understood God. And when thanksgiving drains from our lives as it inevitably does from time to time and it is, re- it is replaced with a spirit of grumbling and a spirit of entitlement, it's a sure sign that we have forgotten, that we have lost, lost sight of what we know to be true of God and ourselves. We have stopped listening to the blood of Jesus. If that spirit of grumbling and entitlement replaces a spirit of thanksgiving, utter thanksgiving, we've stopped listening to the blood of Jesus. So what's the solution? The solution is not to try harder. The solution is to listen, really listen, and pray for ears to hear what God is saying to us through the blood of his Son. Number three, worship. Third way that we call back to what God is calling to us in the blood of his Son. Worship. Verse 28 again. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship. This, this first community, the, the community to which this sermon was first preached, their whole life was structured around worship. It's how it was. And in fact, the same is true for us as modern people. The very same thing. Even secular people, even non-religious people live out a weekly liturgy. A liturgy is just a pattern of worship. Worship is just an expression of devotion to the things you value most in life. So your liturgy is the pattern of your life that reveals what you value most, what you truly worship. Now, if we contracted some independent auditors to come in and do lifestyle audits on all of us, what would those audits reveal? What would your liturgy, your, your pattern of life, what would it show us about what it is that you truly worship? What would your diary say that you worship? What would your internet search history say that you worship? What would your immediate family say? Your bank statements, what would they say? If Google Maps kept a location history of where it is you've been this week, what would that say? What would your employees have to say about what it is that you worship? Would they know? Would it be obvious to them? What about your employers, your boss, your colleagues? What would they say? If the pattern of your life says you are worshipping something other than the living God, that is a grave problem. What's the solution? 
The solution is not to try harder. The solution is to listen, really listen, and pray for ears to hear what God is saying to you through the blood of Jesus. We respond to the blood of Jesus with obedience, with thanksgiving, with worship, and finally, with fear. So after sharing his vision of Mount Zion with those who are being saved by the blood of Jesus, this preacher immediately follows up with a warning. And it is a warning. See, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? It's no secret in our day and age, nobody likes a fire and brimstone preacher. Here's the thing. Our passage begins and ends with fire. Did you notice that? The last word is this. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, I could ignore that and avoid the accusation of being a fire and brimstone preacher problem is, I wouldn't be a preacher at all. Because a preacher preaches the word of God. And our passage from the word of God begins and ends with fire. The conclusion is crystal clear. Our God is a consuming fire. So we can't avoid the conclusion. The implication The God of Zion is the God of Sinai. He was dangerous on Sinai. He remains dangerous. The only difference is the better word spoken by the better blood. And the blood says to us, you are safe because the fire consumed Jesus in your place. If that's the difference... And if the God of Sinai is still with us, and if he's no less dangerous in his holiness, then fear, in some way or another, fear has to be part of a right response to his call. When Paul describes the right response to the saving work of King Jesus, he says to the Philippian church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear is an appropriate response. But of course, we get this horribly wrong, don't we? There are unhealthy approaches to the fear of God. Mistakes that we often make, and we make them repeatedly. Let me just quickly describe three to you. The first is to ignore the category of fear altogether as if it doesn't exist. Right? Fear is out of fashion. It's last season. It's the emotional equivalent of stonewashed denim. We're done with that. God isn't scary. God is love. Lewis Hamilton doesn't have my God is a consuming fire tattooed on his neck. He has God is love. Fear is out. Love is in. Fear and love cannot go together. Really? Is that true? Before we answer that question, let me, let me say what I think happens if we ignore the Bible and we make this move. Fear out, love in. Let me try and describe what I think happens. If, when you, in life, when you want to look like you really don't care, you know, blase, very casual, life just comes naturally, 
and I couldn't really be bothered. And can everyone just settle down, please? When you want to look like that, what do you do? You chew gum, okay? (laughs) I think when we ignore the fear of God, when we stop our ears to the fear of God, we end up chewing gum in his presence. We like that teenager. Okay, no disrespect to our teenagers. Present company excluded if you're with us. Any teenagers? But we like that teenager. We lope in and out of the house. We lope in and out of the fridge. We kick our feet up on the couch. Flick through the channels. The only time we ever speak to anyone is, Hey, what's for supper? Are we guilty of treating God that way? Are we chewing gum in his presence? There's a famous story about John Stott, who was the chaplain to the Queen of England. It's no small task. He's the royal chaplain. So one night he left a royal banquet at 9 o'clock, excused himself, got up and left, because he had to get up at 4.30 the next morning for his Bible reading and his prayer time. That's something he would do every morning at that time at 4.30, Get onto his knees on the floor, Bible open in front of him. So, of course, the next day he gets a call from the, from the protocol office at Buckingham Palace who explains to him, listen, nobody leaves a royal function before the queen. Stott replies, in my defense, I had a more important meeting the next morning. I had a meeting with my king. Do you see? I think that's a healthy fear of God. First mistake, no fear. Fear is out, love is in. Second mistake is counterfeit fear, fake fear, which again is really no fear at all. Fake fear shouts at others. God is scary and you better believe it. Fake fear is a big believer in Mount Sinai. But camps itself on Mount Sinai, as if Sinai were a national park. Fake fear is very concerned about the fear of God in others. God is scary, and these people better believe it. They better realize it. A genuine fear of God does not run around telling other people to watch out without also giving them the better word without also pointing them to the love of God and the mercy of God in Christ. If you genuinely fear God yourself, you will never try to put the fear of God into others without also proclaiming his love and his mercy for them. Why? Because God does care for them. And if you act like he doesn't, if you are carrying God around like a big stick you don't know the first thing about the fear of God and maybe you should a third mistake we can make it also depends on ignoring the better word the blood of Jesus if you are just terrified of God all the time if you are paralyzed in life if you are afraid to put a foot wrong because God is watching And he's waiting to trap you in that sin so that he can unleash the hounds of hell. That is not a healthy fear of God. 
To fear God is to honor him for who he is, for who he's revealed himself to be. And he has revealed himself to be merciful, a loving heavenly father. To fear God is to listen to him. He has spoken to us through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus says, yes, I am holy. So holy, my son had to die. But he died for you. The blood of Jesus says, I love you with a holy love. You are safe with me. To hear that call and to respond in the obedience of faith is a healthy fear of God. So, we can get the fear of God wrong, and we do in so many ways. We can ignore it, we can abuse it, we can be paralyzed. But a healthy fear listens to the blood of Jesus. To the God who says, I am for you in the blood of Jesus. And if we listen carefully, the right response, the only response, is a joyful fear. Or a fearful joy. But how do those things hold together? Can they? God is like a high-felt thunderstorm. Okay, he's a little bit like a high-felt thunderstorm. We love high-felt thunderstorms. We love them. They bring us joy. They refresh our dams and our rivers. They, they clean out the air. They cool us from that oppressive summer's heat. We love them. We rejoice in high-felt storms. But man, they can be scary. You cannot put a collar on a high-felt storm. They are scary. They are wild, especially up here on the hill. I think this is where the lightning comes to make its home, on this hill. They can be massively destructive. The air trembles with the power of light and sound. They are scary. But we love them. We love them, but they are scary. Do you see? Joy and fear. Fearful joy, joyful fear. As C.S. Lewis said of God through one of his characters, safe? Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe, but he is good. God is the most terrifying being that there is. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word and reminds us that he is a different kind of danger. He's the only danger in the universe that you run towards. We run towards Mount Zion. And there in the arms of our Father, we are not just going to find safety. We are going to find deepest joy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much from the, from the pits of our hearts, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts, from the depths of our souls. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that it means that we can meet you on Mount Zion and not on Mount Sinai. Keep us, Father, from trying to go back, from trying to earn our way, 
Help us to live in and from your grace. Help us to respond to the better word in obedience, in thanksgiving, in worship, and in a healthy, joyful fear. We pray this in the name of the one who shed his blood for our sakes, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.